adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. It's beyond time to take action on climate change. But I don't want your hope. Right now, federal governments are failing to act. The city of Miami Beach is declaring a climate change emergency. The politicians in this building can literally look out their windows and on some days see sea level rise. None of this is a coincidence. I want you to panic. Climate change is a consequence. We are in one of the frontline communities facing the climate crisis, and it is time that we speak up for our residents that are being hurt. Just from a quick little rain we got. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. I first became involved with the Clio Institute almost a year ago, once I started learning about the urgency that the climate crisis needed from young people and amounted to my own school walkout. So as a student at FIU, I study environmental science and in all my classes, climate change is sort of touched upon at the end. And I started to realize that no other issue is more ultimate than the climate crisis. And about a year ago also, I became involved with Clio because I attended their communicating climate symposium. In comparison to many of the cities around the world, we are, if not the most, one of the cities that will be affected detrimentally by the climate crisis. So we're talking about sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, intensified hurricanes, losing our access to safe drinking water. So being ground zero for climate change means that we are in a lot of danger and we don't have any time to really waste as a city in comparison to others especially. We're doing this because we feel that no matter how much the youth actually rose up and tackled the problem of climate change in 2019, we aren't necessarily getting the fruitful effects out to the public and the solutions and the knowledge that is needed to cultivate meaningful change. Therefore, House on Fire will act as a catalyst, not only locally in Miami, a ground zero community as Gabby spoke about, but hopefully internationally to inspire a sense of justice and knowledge among the people who will be impacted by climate change, which is frankly, everyone. There is no resilience in Miami specifically or, or other cities in this country unless everybody has a basic understanding of the crisis. You're listening to House on Fire, a youth-led podcast about the climate crisis from the generation with the most at stake. I'm JP. And I'm Gabby. Gabby is a 21-year-old college student and educator studying environmental science. And JP is a 17-year-old climate activist who trades in his megaphone for a microphone every week. As a podcast dedicated to scientific precaution, we at House on Fire take safety seriously. And today, we're bringing you the episode remotely from Miami, Florida, ground zero of the climate crisis and potentially the next hotspot for COVID-19 cases. So today we'll be talking parents. And JP and I are not parents at all. We're kids. JP's 17, I'm 21, but given the work that we do, we know that the role of parents in combating the climate emergency is so important than we may think or we may give credit for. And you might think that the role of parents is just driving their kids to climate marches or helping them balance school and activism, but 
parents have powers that youth often don't. Um, adults have the right to vote. They can donate to climate and environmental groups. They can drive themselves to local government meetings. Right, exactly. And and that's why it's so critical that we are involving parents and adults in general to the climate movement, because the youth has to be open arms to all ages. We have to have these conversations at home with our families. But likewise, parents should also support their children. And going off of that, there's actually something really interesting that I found while working on this episode. Basically, in a study composed of middle school aged kids, um, some social scientists and ecologists at North Carolina State University found that kids can actually increase their parents' level of concern about climate change because unlike adults, their views on the issues don't generally reflect any entrenched political ideology. Yeah, and that's really important to note because this research that JP looked into, it also shows that parents really do care about what their kids think, even on super socially charged issues like climate change or sexual orientation. And this leverage is given to students. It gives us a lot of power and responsibility to hold these conversations with our parents and our families at home. And that's actually exactly what we're doing today. We're having a conversation with two parents in this fight. So today we're talking to Bill Weir, who is the CNN chief climate correspondent and parent in the climate movement, as well as Yoka Arditi Rocha, who is the executive director of the Clio Institute. So we're going to talk about what woke them up to the emergency and why they feel that they need to be in this fight and how parents all around the world should be taking part as well. So Bill Weir covers climate change and its impacts across the country. He's traveled across the globe for his journalism, and Bill has gathered countless climate stories, connecting the dots for his viewers. He recently also did a CNN special titled The Road to Change, America's Climate Crisis, which covered the impacts on our home, Miami, Florida, among other cities. Bill then released a touching personal letter titled To My Son, Born in the Time of Coronavirus and Climate Change, Bill, we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Gabby, JP. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for coming. And another guest we have on today is Yoka Arditi Rocha. So Yoka is the executive director of the Clio Institute, which is a nonprofit organization in Florida dedicated to climate change education and advocacy, which also happens to power our show. And Yoka received her undergraduate degree in biological sciences and a master's degree in sustainability and environmental management from Harvard University. Uh, she is also the mother of two children and the reason why she joined the climate movement. On a daily basis, Yoka works closely with the youth climate movement and takes part in the advocacy herself. And we know this because we've been at strikes together. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. Hi, Yoka. Good to hear your voice again. Hi, Bill. Good to see you. Good to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so to start off this conversation with you two, the first thing that we ask all of our guests on this podcast is this. Was there a moment that you woke up to the climate emergency? And I'll ask that first to Bill and then you can go ahead, Yoka. Um, well, for me, it was, I think, a lot of moments. And because I had the great advantage of a parent who got it a generation before anybody else. Uh, my dad... Uh, was sort of uh, born 100 years too late. He loved the outdoors. He was a cop in Milwaukee who walked away from the job because he wanted to live in the mountains. And we, every summer we would go out and, you know, either explore the rivers or the canyons of Utah and Colorado. 
and go on these epic camping trips to the Boundary Waters. And he was kind of the smartest high school dropout I've ever met, who mm. was obsessed with Rachel Carson's work and, you know, Edward Abbey and John Muir. And so we, he would, you know, t teach me lessons about our natural world, but always say, be careful and let's see how human beings are going to screw this up. And so he, he really informed the way I saw uh, the world. You know, he'd, you know, we'd look at the moon and he'd say, you know, there's 200 tons of trash up there. <laughs> there are bags of vomit uh, that the astronauts left behind and dozens of old spaceships that we just junked up there. Or we'd look in the ocean and he'd say, you know, it takes a thousand years for a Lego to dissolve in seawater. And so I always was infused with this awareness. And then as I became an international correspondent, um, and got to actually go out into the world, it just became crystal clear how fast things that we take for granted are going away. And uh, I remember in 2007, when I was at ABC News for Earth Day, and this was after Al Gore had won uh, you know, all the prizes for An Inconvenient Truth and the IPCC was cranking up. And it feels like we had really turned a corner on the conversation. And, and for Earth Day in prime time, we had a, a correspondent live on every continent. I was underwater over the Great Barrier Reef. Diane Sawyer was anchoring in Times Square. We turned the lights out in Times Square as a symbolic thing. And then a year later, uh, Bear Stearns went down, the Great Recession hit. Uh, Barack Obama put sort of all his political eggs behind healthcare and the conversation drifted away. Hmm. Um, and then time since then, I was able to, when I got to CNN, come up with a show called The Wonder List. And it was all based on our children as the yardsticks in our life. And I have a 16-year-old daughter who, at the time we launched the show, was going to turn my age in the year 2050. So I, I said, I want to go around the world and figure out how many wild elephants will be left when she's my age. How many glaciers in the Alps? You know, who will be the last person to get baptized in the Jordan River, which is disappearing? And are they alive today? And using sort of the, the, the inspiration my dad taught me to think about the world is to go to the wonders of the world, places we can all agree on that are worth saving and see how human nature is chipping away at them at sort of alarming rates. And that sort of set me up as the storyteller of existential dread at CNN. And then uh, mm. in recent years, uh, when I was out, you know, in Hurricane Irma, in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, in the wildfires in California, it became obvious that context and understanding of this story is going to be more important than ever. And uh, for most of my career, I've sort of resisted being put in a pigeonhole with a beat. I like politics, but I just don't, I don't want to be just a straight politics reporter. But when they said we want to create climate as a beat, I leapt at the opportunity because I think it is the story of human history. And mm -hmm. it's not just about starving polar bears. It's about everything in our lives. You know, right now we live in, a, in sort of an, with an attitude that climate is just a menu item on a list of issues when you're polled about what you care about when you go to the polls. No, it's the whole restaurant and everything else on that menu from geopolitics to the economy to social justice uh, is all tied to the health of our climate. Agreed. And I've gone out and for that special, was able to see just how dramatically things are already changing in so many communities. And because uh, our brains are just not wired to think in these long timescales, I don't know that enough people understand it yet, but I think eventually they're gonna be forced to understand it. And I think we're all gonna be climate reporters eventually. Agreed. Yoko, please. 
Sure. Um, well, my story is, is not as fascinating as Bill, but I think there are some sim similarities. Um, I, I grew up with a father that loved nature and I grew up in the Caribbean. So I was very close to the natural world. We would go camping and, and, and we would go fishing and scuba diving and, and snorkeling in, in a lot of our coral reef systems and on the coast of the Dominican Republic. But it wasn't until I married and had my children. In fact, it was actually the hurricane season of 2005, which brought us Hurricane Katrina. And for us here in Florida, Hurricane Wilma and also so many others that, that really awakened me. And I had just had my, my son who was just a year old and we were all waiting for, for the, one of the hurricanes to pass. And we were in a bunker, one of our smallest room in the house. And we started listening to the tiles of our roof starting to pop out. And I remember feeling a lot of uh, terror there. I was hugging my kids. And at that moment, I felt that there was nothing else I could have done. I had gotten all our hurricane supplies that we had bordered our, our, our roof. We had everything that we needed. But at that point, at that moment, I feel really hopeless. And it wasn't until a few months afterwards that an inconvenient truth came in that I was able to connect those dots. And that was my, my awakening. That was my aha moment. Um, I realized that um, we were, you know, the, the cause of the climate crisis. And I myself was part of it. And at that moment, I decided, that if I was part of the problem, I was going to become part of the solution. I consider myself an environmentalist back then. I used to recycle and bring my uh, reusable bags to, to the supermarket. But I was really more of an armchair environmental, if you, if you will, and, and, and realized that the urgency of this crisis and have not stopped then. Went on to live to different countries and started different programs in, in those countries. And I'm actually, you know, honored to be now spearheading the Clio Institute mission and vision of, you know, empowering our society to take action on, on the biggest existential crisis we are experiencing. And, and I think to me, it was um, something that I have taken as my life mission. And I have never looked back since that 2005 hurricane season. Yeah. And I think that those are both remarkable stories and some parallels that, you know, I, I found when listening to those two things is not, not only the fact that the way that your parents raised you and the way that you were brought up had significant influence in what you do now, but what you continue to do too. So on that note, and I'll start off with Bill. So you spoke about this, this letter that you wrote in which you speak to your son, urging him to fight for this planet and its people, telling him to go write a happy ending. When did that desire for your children to become change makers come to you? To back up a little bit, I guess, I had an epiphany in my career at one point when I really actually took a break from news and spent a year in Hollywood writing screenplays and really tried to study storytelling and what works and why certain stories stick in our heads. And over time, once you realize that great stories, whether it's Star Wars or the Odyssey or uh, a really a good joke that you remember, there's a math and a physics to it. And then in just in studying, you know, works like Yovel Noah Harari's great sapiens, um, you look back at human history and realize we are the one creature that's made of stories. You know, we're the, our brains, unlike other creatures who either work together like ants or have opposable thumbs like chimpanzees, we're the one animal that can imagine alternate futures and then convey them to large enough people that it creates new countries or new currencies or or commodities, or you, you know, squirrels aren't sitting around going, boy, if we could only switch to a, 
socialism or if we could only go to Mars, wouldn't that be amazing? And so when you understand that everything in our world is built of these stories and you realize that stories are always changing and we're seeing this playing out right now today, you know, where statues that were as permanent as mountains in these, in these cities are being torn down because the story has changed dramatically. Um, I began to see my, the life of my child through that lens and, and how do I, what do I teach her about where we've come from and those sorts of things. And so The Wonder List was inspired by my daughter Olivia and as she was growing up and sort of the things you care about as a parent, housing, food, shelter, how does that, what does that look like around the world? Uh, all the, the things that we, um, you know, do to, 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 to protect our children to protect them from emotional pain. What do you tell them when grandpa dies? Um, you know, you can understand where religions come from and these these things. And so that that was always the thing. And then with this little guy, you know, I've, like I said, I have one daughter 16, another one just showed up and we didn't think we were capable. Uh, my fiance and I thought we we're too old. And miraculously, uh, we, were, we would love, we thought we would love it. And we were just sort of going down the path of exploring, um, you know, sort of, fertility and all of that, we got pregnant on vacation. And, and it was this sudden like blessing we didn't think was possible. And so ironically, the first time I saw my little boy's face on the ultrasound, I went from that hospital appointment to a climate march uh, to interview Greta Thunberg. And it just puts it in so much perspective. And I think you guys, when you become parents, you'll appreciate Yoka knows this so well that when you hold your child for the first time, the enormity of responsibility that falls on you, that you have this life that you have to take care of. And, mm. uh, you know, the way the conversation is going, um, as we know that's in the headlines these days, Han, every black family has to sit their son down and have the uncomfortable conversation about uh, slavery and racism and policing. Um, I'm afraid that families of all races eventually will have to sit down and have a tough conversation about the climate crisis and the original sins that led up to this moment where we are and why that pain is being going to be heaped on their shoulders unfairly. Right. Uh, but at the same time, wisdom is power. And so the more knowledge we can share, the, the better we can equip this generation to, to help save as much as we can. There's so many points that you made in your answer that perfectly steers me into my next thought. And I totally agreed we should be having those conversations with our families already. And one of the reasons we're doing this episode and this podcast and the work that we do, something that you mentioned was how your daughter inspired your show and just wanting to really raise her with that mindset that we're speaking about right now. And it kind of leads me into asking Yoka this next question. I'm sure that you think of your children, like Bill mentioned, that this is such it's a such a life-changing moment when you have children every your whole perspective changes um yoka when you do the work that you do when you go to these climate strikes with us when you're working on different programs under the clio institute how often are you thinking of future generations and how often are you thinking of maybe particularly your children in that work every day 
There's no one day that I don't think I'm doing this for my kids and hopefully their kids. Because if there's one thing that I fear the most is the fact that they may be faced with the unfortunate decision to decide not to have children on their own in the future because of the climate emergency we're living. So when we, and, and I say we as the Clio Institute, we are uh, trying to engage with all levels of, of society. I think of my kids every single day. And as Bill was telling us, you know, the power of, of stories really set ourselves a roadmap to really try to engage with different members of society at different levels. And so what I try to do is try to connect and finding that common ground, that common purpose that will enable or at least inspire others to act. And I think, you know, going back to the initial question that JP asked Bill of us having parents that that really got us into the, the loving the natural world, I think that we as parents can also play that role. And there's, you know, I, the reason why I love um, our beautiful planet is because I used to watch Jack Cousteau's documentaries with my dad. Um, and, you know, there's a, this beautiful quote that I always try to uh, recite whenever I get a chance because it really resonates with the Cleo's Institute mission, which is to educate everybody and enable them to take climate action. And the quote goes like, we only protect what we love and we only love what we understand and we only understand what we are taught. And I think uh, in essence, that is the, the root of our mission is to try to teach people about the climate crisis, the seriousness and the solutions that we have to solve it. And so to me, as I said, this is a, a personal mission that my kids drive me every day to try to be better, to do better, and find other ways that we can add more parents and other members of our society to try to tackle this tremendous threat that we're facing. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's beautiful and that's so special. And both of you have direct references as how you as to how you have been on the front lines of these of these fights. You know, Bill had his baby and then went to a climate march. And, you know, I have countless memories of Yoka making sure that I don't faint at one. And <laughs> <laughs> on that on that note, you know, playing such a pivotal role in in these youth-led movements. And I'll start off with Bill. What what do you believe your role or, or more broadly the role of parents in this fight should be? Um, I think, the, you know, the main thing is giving your kids space. Hey, and, and I totally agree with Yoka. I mean, the more you get your kids out or, the, or, or if kids are listening to this, the more you can get your parents out in the, out in the wilderness, uh, you know, out on a boat, out under the starry sky to fall in love with these places together and have shared investments. But what strikes me about this moment that I feel is very different from what I talked about back in 2007 is very much youth driven and much the way that for years, if you'd have said there would be a viable gay presidential candidate in, in the year 2020, you know, even a decade ago, you'd have been laughed at. You know, for years that that segment of the population was persecuted. But then once the LGBTQ movement like ramped up, man, it happened. Like it swept across the nation and and you know, sort of that equality took off. And I think the big reason for that was media uh, showed more people in just being themselves, which empowered more kids to come out, which empowered more families to realize, wait a minute, a cousin 
Linda is lesbian. I love cousin Linda, you know, and then and, and before you know it, all those dogmas sort of break away. Now, I think when you've got countless Greta's sitting at dining room tables across the country saying, hey, guys, I'm kind of worried about the fact that we had five 500 year storms in Texas, you know, or I'm, I'm really worried about, did you see what's happening? It was a hundred degrees in Siberia. This is not normal. What are we doing about this? That it's opening up eyes of my generation and my parents' generation. So, and when they, and when parents hear that, to take it seriously, to understand that, that, that you know, the way COVID-19 unfairly targets the oldsters among us, this crisis is going to unfairly target the younger generation. They're going to have to deal with our mistakes, but we can flatten the curve in similar ways. Yeah, I'd like to, I, I, I love that. And I'd like to hear from you, Yoga, similar, same question. Yeah, I think as parents, we move mountains every day for our kids. And I believe while the youth movement have given us tremendous hope, seeing you mobilize, seeing you organize, seeing you out um, in your climate strikes and rallies all around the world have given the climate movement a renewed sense of hope. But we all know that the climate crisis is too big to tackle by just one group. And, and we need to invite more parents to join the fight. And I think the important, going back to the research reference that you did earlier, JP, that children have been known to really persuade their the parents, especially in, so, in, in a topic that is, has been so much politicized for so many years, we found that kids can leverage and can really bring a sense of trust to the conversation that scientists, nonprofits, world leaders have not been able to do. So I am putting really a lot of trust into the parents and the kids to really amplify the fight, to really amplify the urgency and to really get others to follow suit and join us. Because we, as we are experiencing such a tremendous public health crisis right now, we know there's a lurking bigger crisis that has already started to appear. And especially for us in South Florida and ground zero for so many climate related impacts, it's already here. So this is not something for the of the future. This is something that we're already experiencing right now. And disproportionately, just like many other uh, similarities and parallels with the, with the COVID-19 crisis, the impacts are disproportionately felt in, in low income communities, in communities of color, the poor, the ill, and women and children all around the world. So I think, you know, now more than ever, we need everybody to do something about this because that's what gives me hope. There's so many things that we could be doing and so many solutions out there that this is something that we could all embrace and really get us in the right track because we're running out of time. Most definitely. And and you mentioned how important it is that we that parents themselves join that fight, that they go to the strikes, they go to the meetings, and they do what their kids are doing alongside them. And something that I've noticed when having these conversations with people who are older than me is that there is this sense of no urgency from the perspective of an adult because they may feel that they won't live long enough to see the impacts of the climate crisis. And even if they do have children, it sort of sometimes feels like it doesn't click, that they just feel a sense of protection from the impacts of the climate emergency because they won't be alive to see it 
at least that's what they think. And so I'm curious to hear what you both have to say to parents who are skeptical about this, about the movement. And how do we convince parents that they they really need to join the youth despite what they may experience in their lifetimes? And I'll give that to Bill first. Yeah, so it feels like every day, you know, I waffle between, do we have enough time to debate, you know, reality deniers? Mm. You want to be able to say, look, either do help or get out of the way. Uh, but at the same time, politically, we know in order to shift our economy in such monumental ways, it's going to take all people. It's going to take, you know, profit motive driving this just as much as it is tree hugging, you know, progressives. And I think that that kids are really can leverage parents who may be dragging their heels a little bit. I saw a study out of Yale recently that something like almost 70% of people who really even believe in this topic talk about it rarely or never. And one of the one of the interesting stories I found in working on the road to change was the Underwater Homeowners Association in Pinecrest down mm-hmm. there. Uh, and which this artist Xavier Cotada came up with as a way to drive conversations. When you realize this is this is this is going to affect you, your wallet. It's already affecting property taxes. Whether you're going to be able to get insurance, it's changing. You know, electronic vehicles are changing the way we price used cars. It's happening. Whether you want to play ball or not, and I think kids can really, you know, rather than look at puppy dog eyes and 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 try to play to pull those emotional strings say me and my friends have started this climate club mom i need you to come drive us to the meeting and i'd like you to sit in and listen uh and also understanding the power of consumers you know your generation you've been sold to since you were zygotes you understand especially with apps and and e-commerce and the gig economy how powerful your opinions are when it comes to holding corporations accountable in addition to politicians and local leaders. And I think a lot of times we get hung up on what's happening in Washington when so much good can be done in a homeowners association at a township level um, to figure out what's our climate plan. And you and when you pull neighbors together, that's I think that that grassroots stuff is gonna is gonna really help. And even if you are aren't un, old enough to vote. You say, I want to go with you to the polls. Today's primaries in New York. Uh, I want to. I, I, I know I can't pull the lever. I want to go in the booth and see what a ballot looks like. And I want to make sure you're voting the right way for my future. I think all those little uh, pressures could add up in a big way. Yeah, I actually, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think, you know, from the Clio Institute perspective, we, we work with a bottom top and also a top bottom approach, but at the grassroots levels, um, we're looking for for that civic engagement component and, and making sure that you know members of of our society are really understanding how their local government works and and making them participatory of of that process and having their voices be heard. And we have several programs where we just educate the lay public into becoming really uh, comfortable talking about climate science so they can come out to their own homeowners association so they can come to their uh, places of worship or places of work to be able to explain what is happening to our climate, how serious it is, and what are the solutions that are out there that we need to be supporting. And I think, you know, from a parent perspective that may not be so engaged, it has to do a lot with education. It's about not being able to connect the dots and see how it's really impacting 
asking them. They probably have not made those connections. And I'm going to give you a quick example. And there was an article that just came out in the New York Times talking about how rising seas are threatening, you know, 30-year mortgages. And, you know, in places where we have chronic flooding and, and coastal flooding, those locations are becoming a, a financial risk for a lot of banks. And banks aren't going to be making decisions about the future of our coast and especially decide what they want to protect and what they want to kind of let wash away. And so, the you know, conventional mortgages have survived financial crisis in the past, but they may not survive the climate crisis. It's just not one way that people may not be perceiving how this is going to be affecting them if it's not already affecting them now. Same thing with how connecting it to, you know, to public health and how our carbon pollution is affecting our health, specifically now that we're talking about a a respiratory and cardiovascular pandemic. We know already there's research that, that really tells us that in areas where there's high pollution, higher pollution, air pollution, there's higher COVID-19 related death. So again, it's a matter of being able to connect those dots. And here in South Florida, we're not, you know, we, we know that hurricane season is something very relevant to us, but the rapid intensification we're seeing with hurricanes now and, and warming waters is it definitely affect all of us here in Florida. You know, we had last year hurricanes that became category five hurricanes in just a matter of hours. So the, the climate crisis is affecting us all. The problem is people are not talking about it and people that do not feel that it's affecting them immediately. They see it as a distant future, but may not necessarily understanding how that is affecting them now. And so that's why I feel that education is such a huge component to see action. Another great lesson from the the age of COVID, though, too, is the communities that pull together the tightest and the most in the most unified ways are the ones that survive the best. It's the communities that wait for people to stop start dying before they figure out how to get a test or, and where to buy masks are caught flat footed. All those lessons apply going forward. And you guys know down in South Florida, you know the communities that have a hurricane plan in place uh, do much better than people just you know roll the dice. And people are begging scientists to come up with a vaccine in record time. And if they do it, people will shrug and say, not appreciating how much um, incredible collaborative brain power goes into that. The lesson is maybe we should listen to scientists when they warn us about emergent uh, pandemics or they warn us about the other invisible threat that, that is in the atmosphere. Maybe we should listen to them. Well, every disaster movie starts with a scientist being ignored. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think I think that ultimately to like tie this conversation together, it's really important to realize everything that we've spoken about in these last like 30 something minutes. You know, we have spoken about COVID. We have spoken about race. And I think that's something that honestly, a lot of kids now, even myself, are actually educating their parents on like the fact that yeah, we might have grown up looking at stars and like climbing mountains and swimming in rivers, but now we're seeing the direct effects of a change in climate on people. And we're saying, hey, mom, healthcare matters because we know that COVID, much like climate, disproportionately affects some groups more than others. Hey, dad, Black Lives Matter and Black people and Black communities in this country are being disproportionately affected by environmental racism. And all of these things are coming to the forefront now, which has really been such a shift in the fight that that the youth have brought. And I think that it's wonderful because not only does it bring forth the narratives that we need to address in addressing this crisis, but it also brings forth 
the urgency and the scope of it and the entirety of its of its effect on the human population and and you know that is something that frankly parents care about and on that note one question that we also always ask guests and I'll start off with Yoka on this one if there's one thing that you'd want a parent listening to take away what would it be listen to your children <laughs> they know more than you do. <laughs> now, I really would hope that everybody can take away today is that we need to do a better job of and inform ourselves. There's definitely a lot of information out there and, and educate ourselves and, and finding ways that we can um, contribute to solve this crisis. I think there are many groups out there, whether it's us, the Clio Institute, or for example, Our Kids Climate, uh, which is a network of climate parents groups all around the world who are united to protect kids, the kids we love from this crisis. There are many opportunities for parents to be engaged, but definitely I would say educate yourself and talk about it. Let's all talk about this crisis. This is something that we need to be having at dinner tables, at Thanksgiving dinners, at Christmas, when we ha- when we we meet and get together with our family members. This is a very, if it's not the most, this is the most important topic we could all be discussing in our family table at this moment. Thank you. Bill? Um, I will throw out a term and it, it sounds a little wonky, but I want every parent to, uh, to think about something called shrinking baseline syndrome. And every parent can relate to this. Every time you tell your kid a story, you know, when I was a boy, you could see 10 times as many stars, or there were so many starfish on this beach, or the fish were this much bigger. Well, your kid has no idea what they're missing. So their baseline shrinks. Imagine what they're gonna be telling their kids. When I was a kid, we used to eat actual wild seafood. Or when I was a kid, you know, you didn't have to go into a museum to see a tree. And we have to stop that cycle before the stuff that matters most is gone. And in the reality of what we're living in now, we've seen what it's like when life as we know it goes away, when supply chains end, when entire economies shut down. Well, if you think it's bad, a pandemic is bad, imagine doing it in a wildfire or in a hurricane evacuation. And novel diseases and social unrest can only get worse in a hotter, more unpredictable world. It is time to wake up. And as Yoka said, learn as much as you can about what's happening to the things that matter most in your backyard. Bill, Yoka, beautiful answers. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Much like adults tell JP and I and other people our age that we give them hope, uh, you guys really give us hope. And it's really nice to see the work that is being done and how this conversation went so well. So thank you again. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, JP. Thank you, Bill, for your time. It's, it was a great conversation. We should get stay for hours talking about this. I'm sure <laughs> everybody feel the same. Absolutely. You great. can call me anytime. I'm rooting for you guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. This has been House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast powered by the Clio Institute. Make sure to find us on Instagram at House on Fire Podcast and listen to our show on all your favorite platforms for podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This episode has been funded by Our Kids Climate. To learn more about Our Kids Climate, visit ourkidsclimate.org.